This is Pastor Devin, and I just want to say thanks for joining us, and I hope and pray that this message is an encouragement to your life today. Okay, uh, today you have uh, an incredible treat. You know, I, uh, I grew up with uh, two pastors, uh, my dad and then another gentleman by the name of Dan Betzer. Those were the only two pastors I knew growing up, and uh, we grew up in a more, uh, I guess Sundays would be more traditional for us. Uh, I wasn't allowed to have anyone come over on Sunday afternoon. Uh, I, you know, I could never invite someone to just come hang out. Sunday afternoon, we would eat together. We typically would have roast and potatoes. And then we, would, we were forced to take naps on Sunday afternoon. I don't know if anyone else grew up like this. I remember as a kid laying on my bed on Sunday afternoon, just looking at the ceiling going, I don't know. But I couldn't have anyone come over, couldn't go to someone's house. We didn't do anything. On Sunday, and then of course we grew up with Sunday evening service, so we would go back to church Sunday night. Um, but before we would go home, I have two sisters. They would go home with mom and just kind of get everything ready, and I would just wait for for dad. I I just would hang out and watch dad take uh, time with people, and it was amazing. I learned so much by just watching dad uh, take time with people. I uh, I would of course. Some, often within the church context, some of those people were, um, they were repetitive visitors, you know, um, and I would get in the car with dad and I'd, you know, as a teenager go, dad, man, it's the same person every week, the same issue, same stupid question for you. I watch you every week with this person, you know, so frustrated going, don't you, he's got roast and potatoes waiting at home. Come on. Um, and dad would just say, you know, son, you just, you just take the time. Yeah, I just watched him uh, just display grace in such a, a wonderful way with people. And if you've ever had any opportunity to spend time with dad, um, you know he has this uncanny ability to lock in with you. You're the most important person in the room. And you go away feeling, anybody that spends time with dad, goes away feeling better about life than when they first started talking to him. I don't know about you, but that sounds like hope to me. People, we talked about this last week, but hope is not something that we do, but hope is rather something that we can possess. And the thing that you can possess, you can give away. You can, you can transfer. Uh, Dad has been giving hope for many, many years. And today, you get to hear him uh, speak. And I know I've been looking forward to this day. You're going to learn. I'm going to learn. I keep learning from dad, even today. And so I would love it if you would give my dad a welcome as he comes to the pulpit to speak this morning. No, 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 no. Love you. Wow. Didn't know he's watching all the time. I uh, just want to make a couple remarks here before we start because um, I, I'm just, the amazing thing to me is that, um, I guess I'll just lay this thing down, is that just a few weeks ago, I, I didn't know most of the people that I'm looking at right now. And uh, th- that's what's amazing to me is that um, you're here. And God is forming a, a church body, and that I get to be part of it. Um, 
I told the connector service earlier that um, I love running track and playing basketball, and uh, I just used to think that that was the most thrilling thing in the world, is to lead the team onto the court and to you know, break the tape ahead of the other runners. Uh, but I found out later in life that there's something way more thrilling than that, and that's sitting in the bleachers watching your boy lead the team onto the court and watching him break the tape. There's nothing quite like that. And then on Sunday mornings to be here, it's just one of the greatest thrills of my life. To watch your son impart truth and to share the goodness of God and give hope to lives. And uh, so I often sit on that front pew with, with tears running down my throat, I mean down my uh, uh, face, and in my throat's this lump, but um, it's because of the goodness of God. He's faithful, folks. He's faithful. And he'll be faithful to you, too. Uh, before I begin sharing what I believe God would have me say on the subject of hope, I just want to mention three statements that Devin made last week that I, I just, has it's rung in my heart all week, and it's this. Number one, hope requires trust. In order for you to have hope, hope requires that you trust. If you're going to live a life of hope, you're going to have to do something that no one else can do for you. You are going to have to trust. Hope is anchored in, number two, hope is anchored to something unseen. God's world is not a natural world. It's an unseen world. The Apostle Paul said, so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary. Life is like a vapor. But what is Unseen is eternal. Hope gives you an eternal perspective. You don't lose sight of the big picture. Number three, hope is found in a relationship with God. Romans 15, 13. My, may God, the source, the source of hope, fill you with joy and peace in Him. Then, then you will overflow with hope. What our world needs today is people who are, who are overflowing with hope. Our world needs hope. So I want to talk to you today about hope for greatness. Not, not as we know greatness, but God's kind of greatness. Because God sees greatness in a whole different way than we often do. And I want to go to the prophet Isaiah, who prophesied about the coming Messiah in a lot of his writings. What was amazing about Isaiah is that not only did he prophesy about the coming of the Messiah, but would jump all the way forward to our day and in our future. So turn to Isaiah 11, if you have whatever you're using, and it'll be here on the screen. Isaiah 11, verses 1 to 3. And I'd like to just look at that first verse. It reads, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch, capital B, by the way, a branch will bear fruit. 
Now, some would say that to begin a message, especially on Sunday morning, the worst thing you could do was give a history lesson. But I'm going to risk that this morning. But I've got good news. The good news is that it's only going to be like three minutes. So bear with me. By the time that Isaiah prophesied these words that we just read, the glory days of Judah had departed. The golden age when David and Solomon reigned and had given way to a divided kingdom. Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Isaiah called, was called to prophesy to the southern kingdom of Judah. During Isaiah's life and ministry, Judah was beaten on the battlefield by a coalition of Syria and Israel with the result that captives were taken away to Samaria. The Edomites, all these ites, and Palestines, uh, Palestinians also captured many towns that had been part of Judah. Commitment to the Lord on the part of the people of Judah was up and down. Most of the time it was down. The center of the world's military and economic power was Assyria, not Judah, not Israel. And in his lifetime, he would even prophesy their exile, total defeat. And with all this in mind, it's an understanding thing that Isaiah would use the word stump to describe Judah. It's a stump. The glory of Judah had been cut down. And all it was was a stump. Isaiah was portraying God's people as weak and small and unimpressive. What is a mere stump in comparison with the mighty forest of Assyria? Then came Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome. Yet this prophecy is not about weakness. It is about greatness. The greatness of the coming Messiah. Isaiah was predicting that in the fullness of time, a small root, a small shoot of new growth would sprout from that old stump. And by the time this little twig was to appear, the Roman Empire would be full in bloom. And a black stump with a little small green sprout was nothing in comparison with the beauty and the strength of Rome. So how is it that these words are about greatness? They're about a special kind of great, Christmas greatness, God's kind of greatness. So let's read the rest of our text, the next two verses. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of God, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And then Isaiah, as I said earlier, jumps all the way to our future and describes the rule and reign of Christ on this earth when he returns. That day... Dear followers of Christ, that's our future. It's what the Bible calls the blessed hope of all who believe. That's out before us. However, I want you to see in this prophecy, and the fulfillment of it, is that God's kind of greatness is not packaged in the same way that the world packaged greatness. When the people of this world think of greatness, they think of the physical Power, wealth, beauty. But God's greatness was expressed in Bethlehem and a tender little baby. And we need to remember as we look and hope for God to display his greatness in our day and in the future on the night of Jesus' birth, he did something, yes, indeed, supernatural. But he did it in the form of the simple. 
what appeared to be mundane was really miraculous. He was just a baby, but he was God in human form. Mary was just a plain Palestinian teenager, but an angel told her, you have found favor with God, and she was having a baby while she was still a virgin. They were just ordinary shepherds, but an angelic host lit up the Judean sky to announce to them the birth of the Savior of the world. God's Christmas kind of greatness is typical of the way he still works. He has not changed throughout the ages. And in our day, he takes what looks very ordinary, even less than ordinary, and makes it into something extraordinary and wondrous. To me, that is one of the most exciting, encouraging truths in the Christmas story and Jesus' birth. But if we're not careful, we'll miss it. Michael Card has said, Christmas means coming to a place where you would least expect to find anything you want and instead finding everything you ever hoped for. Christmas greatness starts so small that most people overlook it. And for these next few minutes, I'd like to look at three ways. Yes, there are many more, but particularly in this prophecy from Isaiah and its fulfillment of the Christmas story, I want to look at three ways God creates and expresses his kind of greatness. Number one, this is really deep. You ready? God chooses and uses people to do his work. Is that not amazing? I mean, look, look at the way he, he chose to introduce his son and our Savior. He chose Mary. She wasn't royalty. She was merely a peasant girl. She was from Nazareth. Nazareth was not an impressive place, and nobody impressive came from there. They used to say, can anything good come out of Nazareth? God chose someone whom he could consider to be just, we would consider them ordinary, average person from a humble place to be the human means of a miracle. When you think about it, God could have bypassed human beings. And really, quite honestly, if I was doing it now, that since I know me and some of you, I would have bypassed some humans and gone straight to something incredible, like have, have Jesus ride on a star into time and space or turn midnight into daylight. Or midday into darkness. I mean, that would, be, that would catch your eye. That would be impressive. But instead, he chose to express his greatness in the humble, everyday occurrence of the birth of a Jewish baby. Just a small twig on an old stump. Throughout history, God has chosen many people to do his work. They wouldn't have been selected by most likely to succeed. You know what I think? I think God, I believe this, God takes special pleasure in choosing the most unlikely, unheralded people to do his most spectacular work. That's God's Christmas greatness. He's always choosing someone who's just a stem off of an old stump to do something great. A boy named David. A teenage girl from Nazareth, a baby born in a stable, fisherman, a boy with a sack lunch, and oh yes, even you and me. That is one reason this Christmas truth is so exciting and filled with hope. If God can use people like us, 
then we need to be open to realize there's people all around us that he wants to reach and touch. We're not kings and queens either. How many of us live the lifestyle of rich and famous? But I don't know about you, none of the policymakers in Washington have called me to ask what I think before they make decisions. Obama, Bush, Clinton, none of them call me to ask my opinion on anything. And believe me, I have a few thoughts I'd love to share with them. Hey, wouldn't you like to have a shot at that? I mean, just think, if you had, Caleb would love it. I, just have a moment to share really what you think. But none of them call me. Listen, we may have little influence in this world. And we don't possess the power of the world, but that's just fine because God uses people like us to do great things. So stop looking at other people, concluding that they're talented, more gifted, more greater opportunities. God can do something great with them, but not you. I've talked with people who think like that. Christmas teaches us that God stooped all the way down to a cow stall to touch a young woman from Nazareth to perform one of his greatest miracles. Not what J-Lo or make an idol think. CNN, Fox News, ESPN, or even TBN for that matter. God confounds the wisdom of the wise. What, it's what God calls great. Something that has eternal value. Another way God produces Christmas greatness is that number two, God arranges and changes history to accomplish his will. In the first uh, volume of C.S. Lewis's fictional series, The Chronicle of Narnia, he symbolically portrays the condition of the world before the coming of Christ. Narnia, or the world, was under the tyrannical rule of the evil white witch. Have you ever read that? The people never saw the sun. There was no warmth. And here's the way it, it says, everything was covered with snow. That sounds like the place Dream and I spent over 20 years of our life on the banks of Lake Erie in the state of Ohio. Lewis summarized the gloom of that land, Narnia, not Ohio, by stating, it's always winter. Listen to this. It's always winter, but never Christmas. That's the way that Palestine was before Jesus was born. The people of Israel had once governed themselves under the rule of God, but long before Jesus was born, the pagan Romans, they ransacked the land, ruled the people. And the Romans neither understood or cared about the glorious history of the people of God. At one time, the faith and ethics of the people helped to shape the ideas and laws of the land. But by the time of Christ, Greek culture, philosophies ruled the world, and the Jews were on the outside looking in. Jews resorted to terrorism, trying to kill Romans. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious guys, they were just busy squabbling among themselves. The situation was bleak. Always winter, but never Christmas. And then God arranged for that baby to be born in Bethlehem. And in the ordinary unhistoric event of the birth of a Jewish child, God turned the world upside down. 
The reason the world was changed is because Christ grew to be a man who lived a sinless life, claimed to be God in the flesh, and then proved that claim by dying for the sins of mankind and rising from the grave three days later. Furthermore, he told his followers that the same power that caused him to rise from the dead would be in them. And that power came upon them 50 days later on the day of Pentecost. Filled with the power of God's Spirit, they began to change the Roman Empire. Not with swords or statesmen and senators, but with the story that began with the baby in Bethlehem and ended with the life that was given for them on the cross and offered to everyone. These humble Christians were not intimidated by the power of Rome. The astonishing miracles that before, listen to this, half a century had passed, the power of the Roman Empire had passed into their hands against insurmountable odds. By the end of the third century, one-fourth of the population in the Eastern Roman Empire was Christian and many in the West. It caused the father, church father Tertullian to write, every age, condition, and rank is coming over to us. Already we fill the world. Isn't it interesting that when God wanted to change Rome, he started in the insignificant village of Bethlehem. It's God's way of greatness. Listen to how Isaiah 60 verse 21 reads, They are the shoot I have planted. The least of you will become a thousand, the smallest a mighty nation. I am the Lord. In its time, I will do it swiftly. It's God's way of greatness. It starts small and grows until everyone is affected by it. And on a personal level, listen to what God said to Job. Job 8, verses eight, uh, 5 through 7. But if you look to God and plead with the Almighty, if you are pure and right, even now He will rouse Himself on your behalf and restore you to rightful place. Your beginnings will seem humble. So prosperous will your future be. One, one translation says, your beginning was small. Now, I don't know if there's anyone here who would say their beginning was small. But you're a candidate for God's greatness. And just as he's done in the past, he can do in our day. God can act to arrange and, and change history. But it will probably be a lot more like the work of yeast than the work of dynamite. Yeast affects the dough nearby. Then the dough affects the unleavened dough around it until the whole lump of dough is leavened by just a little yeast. Sometimes I think we are guilty of pleading with God to light the dynamite that we work so hard to lay. And sometimes we decide to light it for him if he's slow at it. But God wants to work like yeast. God will unusually start not by storming Rome, but by being born in Bethlehem. That's Christmas greatness. And he still does it today. Christ is born in someone's heart. A life has changed. He shares the good news with someone else, and that person's life has changed, and it affects everyone around. Each in turn shares it with someone until God has arranged and changed history to accomplish his will. And finally, I want you to see that there's hope that God will produce his greatness in our day. Number three, God allows us to share in the humiliation of Christ and claims us to be his witnesses. Now, just for a few minutes here, I want you to think about Joseph and Mary, human parents of the divine Savior and Lord. What an honor 
But you, could, you can't even imagine what the humiliation and shame that they went through. They were engaged, yet not married. But Mary was pregnant, out of wedlock. In that day, in that little Jewish town like Nazareth, that was a scandal. But in the midst of the humiliating crisis, Mary and Joseph trusted God and looked to the future with hope. Today we honor them for it. It covers all of our Christmas cards. It looks so nice and sweet and wonderful. But it was a difficult, humiliating, shameful time for that couple. But they chose to trust God. The Bible says that we are called to bear the reproach of Christ. When he hung on the cross, that reproach. We're we're called as believers to share in that. Listen to Hebrews 13, verses 12, 13. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace or the reproach he bore. Here's the question. Are you willing to go beyond merely admiring the courage of Mary and Joseph and become willing to become weak in the eyes of men? Because sometimes we'll be required to. Have you ever voluntarily associated yourself with Jesus Christ even when you knew it would brand you as different, set you up for ridicule and embarrassment? Even in the marketplace where it's not in vogue to mention the name of Jesus in conversation. Have you been willing to risk rejection from colleagues in order to make Jesus known? Like Mary and Joseph, being great in the eyes of God often begins by being humiliated in the eyes of people. Jesus said that God's kind of greatness is different from the world's greatness. He said in Matthew 23, 12, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. He also said in Mark 10, 43, 44, whoever wants to become great among you must become your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave to all. In the kingdom of God, listen, the way up is down. 1 Peter 3.8, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. When you are willing, I've seen this, I know it to be true. When you are willing to put yourself in a position to share Christ no matter what, there is no limit to the great things God can do in your life and the people's lives around you. We uh, sing this at this time every year. You know it. Go tell it on the mountain. Go tell it on the mountain. Everywhere that Jesus Christ is born. Go tell it on the mountain. That's what every one of us are called to do. I remember teaching a class for new pastors years ago. During that class, I used to ask one question to these young pastors. I would ask them this. When was the last time... You shared the gospel message with someone apart from your pulpit and in your church building. It's a good question. Because what God calls us to is to share in his reproach, and then he claims us to be witnesses to the people around us. It's more than just coming to church. and We come here, there's not much of a challenge, you know. I mean... I'm pretty much, I feel comfortable with you because, you know, I can raise my hand, praise the Lord. I don't think anyone's going to do anything to me about that. And and I think we're comfortable. It's not much of a challenge to praise the Lord here. 
But I want to tell you, out there where the people need hope, someone must speak his name at the right time. I'm not talking about being Bible thumpers. I'm just talking about the fact, the Bible says, that this hope that's in me will overflow. It will overflow and touch the lives of people around me. When's the last time the hope within you overflowed to change the life of a person? In the uh, early service, I shared this story, and I want to share it again because I want to show you how sometimes, I just want to say this, you know, it's easy to witness to people that are kind of like us. I mean, you, you, if they're dressed like us and they uh, kind of like the same things we do, then we're kind of drawn to them. But sometimes God will take us to places where we don't particularly are comfortable with the people. When Devin was real small with his two sisters, we decided to have an incredible vacation. I want, we were pastoring in Sandusky. I wanted to get out of town. I wanted to get away from church work. I didn't, I want, didn't want anyone to know I was a pastor. I wasn't going to do anything bad. I wasn't going to do anything that people would criticize me for, for being a pastor. But I, I just wanted to get away from church. And so we got a trailer. We attached it to the back of our vehicle. And we headed for Cape Hatteras. Anyone ever been to Cape Hatteras? It's, it's an awesome place. Kill Devil Hills and out there. I mean, it's, a, it's out there. So we pulled in, and you know how you sign up at the front, and then you go to the back, and you pull in beside the person beside you, the camper. And as we pulled in, I just glanced at the license plate of the camper beside, and it said Sandusky, Ohio. I thought, we're not, we're not going to stay here. Uh, it was a large campsite, and I thought, well, what we'll do is I'll set up for I don't want to go back through this right now. I'm tired. We'll do a night in this spot, and tomorrow we'll change. And so we started setting the camper up, getting it all ready, and then out of nowhere came this. Un- you know, I was in the military, and I've heard almost everything that can be said that would be bad language. But I never heard anything like that. This guy took it up another notch. This guy turned green and purple. It was unbelievable. And I ducked her. I thought, I, wh- how, what does the creature look like that that came out of? And I glanced around. And here was a guy with cut-off jeans that were about three sizes too small. He looked to me like he had consumed a lot of beer in his lifetime. He had no shirt on. And he had suspenders attached to those shorts. Tipped back on his tra- his trailer, but there in front was all kinds of fishing rods you've ever seen in your life, every kind you can imagine. He had this dune buggy that he had there with a big, you know, antenna with a flag at the top that swished when he drove down the beach. And he he got mad about something, and man, he was lighting it up. And so I thought, now I know I'm going to move. I can't let my kids hear that all week. So we fully planned to get up early, move somewhere else. So I got up early, and I came out. It was about 6, and it was still kind of dark. And I walked around to the back to start, and out of the darkness I hear, Hey, preacher, the voice of the guy that lit up the sky. 
And I walked over and he said, look, I, I just want to tell you, I'm really sorry. Really sorry about yesterday. I, I know. And I said, wait, wait a second. I'll ask you something. How did you know I was a preacher? He said, those people over there next to you, they told me. Well, that's everything that I didn't want. But he said, here's what I, if you, listen, because I was so bad, he said, listen, I want to apologize. And here's what I'll do. I'll make a deal with you. You see all these fishing rods here? Yeah. He said, I'll tell you what. You can use any one anytime you want to use it. You don't have to come and ask. Just come, take it, use it. That's a good deal. And I started doing that for the first two or three days. And then about the fourth day, I got up in the morning to go do that. And he comes out and he says, hey, preacher, can I go with you? Well, and he did. And so we would stand about knee deep out in the, in the you know, and cast and catch croaker fish, by the way. Anyone ever caught croaker? And he, he knew how to cook it. It was incredible. He knew all the details about that stuff. And then... Later, in the, as we got near the end of the week, and, you know, he would talk about stuff I just really didn't. And there were times when I think, i got to talk to this guy about Christ. He, he's desperate. He's in bad shape. And every time I felt checked. See, I'm, I sometimes in our witnessing, I want to talk to you about reaching people. You just think you got the four spiritual laws down, and you go out there and you bash them in the face. And I've done a notch on my belt, and I've witnessed. Listen, the hope in you. Listen, the hope. That's in you. You don't have to quote scripture even. Christ who lives in you. The hope of glory. Will manifest himself. And they'll be touched by the power and the presence. Because he lives in you. It's the hope of the future folks. If that. if I'm telling you. It is the hope of this city. It's the hope of our nation. It's the hope that resides inside us. And so I just would talk every once in a while. And so near the end of the week, he said, hey, um, could you and I, uh, well, I know the night before, he said, hey, have you done everything you wanted to do here? And I said, no, I really like oysters on the half shell, but I haven't had any. He said, come with me, buddy. And we went over, and have you ever walked into an oyster bed? As far as you could see were oysters. And I just reached over and pick them up. It was incredible. Had a feast that night. And then in the morning, got up, got ready to leave, and he came out, and he said, um, by the way, I found out this guy's name at the camp. Here's what they called him. And this will help you see what he looked like. This is what they called him. Boss Hog. Boss Hog. So Boss said, hey, want to take a ride with me in the buggy? I said, yeah, let's go. We go flying down the beach. He stops all of a sudden. He goes, okay, one minute of religion and then no more. I said, yeah, shoot. He goes, I'm a good Presbyterian. I don't want to offend any Presbyterians here this morning. I'm a good Presbyterian. I pay my dues. I show up at the right services at the right time. He said, but my daughter through the years has caused me unbelievable pain. I've gotten her out of jail. She's on drugs. She has given us grief like you can't believe. And then... A few months ago, she gets what she calls saved. Do you know what saved is? And she says, I'm going to hell. And I said, well, boss, you know, what's happened to her? I said, has she changed? She said, yeah. I said, well, you need to listen to her. 
He said, yeah, but even further than that, by the way, the church I pastored in Sandusky was Calvary Assembly, which is Assemblies of God. He said, she's going to this church. This is, it's called Assemblies of God. Is that a cult? I said, no, no, I, I pastored church by that name. And he said, really? And even then I felt checked. Just a common guy, had very little knowledge of God, and all, he was impacted by just my presence, really, and the presence of God in my life. And so we leave, and I said, hey, here's what I'd suggest you do, boss. Your daughter has been asking you to go to church. Why don't you just go with her and check it out? He, I said, will you promise me that? I'm not going to ask you to do anything else. I'm going to ask you, will you please do that? He said, I'll do it. I got home. I wrote him a letter, and I said, boss, you don't know it, but you just were used by God to make a great vacation for a servant of the Lord, and I want to thank you for it. Boss writes me a four-page letter back, handwritten, and he says, in all my years of uh, loaning out my equipment, never once has anyone written me to say thank you. But he said, you know what? I'm going to do what you asked me to do. I'm going to go to church with my daughter. A few weeks later, I get a letter from the daughter, and she says, Pastor Ron, I don't know you, never met you. But I feel like I know you from your dad, my dad, because he talks about you all the time. And he said, she said, he went to church with me, and he's changing. Can't believe my dad is changing. Months go by. I don't, I'd forgotten about Boss Hog. And one Sunday morning, I sit in the office preparing for church, and I hear knock, knock, knock at the door. I open the door, and there stands Boss. I hardly recognize him. He's, stand, he's in a suit with a tie. And he said, I'm on my way up to Alaska for a fishing trip. He's coming from Jersey. He said, I thought I would go come by here and just see all you're cracked up to be, see if you're really real. And that morning he sat in service, tears run down his face. Boss was changed. Now, I tell you that story because all around you are boss hogs. They may be a little more refined than he was, but they're just as hopeless and they don't have answers, and they don't know where they're going to go. And in you, I just read it this morning. Pastor Devin read it to you last week. Within you is the hope of the world. Now this morning, listen, this morning, while some of your neighbors and friends are out preparing for Christmas like crazy, you're here. You're here. And here's what I know. And all the hundreds and hundreds of Sunday morning services that I've been able to be part of. Here's how God works. Simple. His spirit touches you this morning in a simple way. Now, the people sitting around you, they don't know what's going on. They don't know what's happening. But something is starting in you that's going to be great. And you will never be the same. And that's how he does it. Simple. We work so hard. And God, at that Christmas, wanted to show us. I will use simple people 
to do great things. And that's the reason why, dear ones, I still have hope for our world. Thanks again for joining us. If you want to join us on Sunday, we meet at 1030 a.m. right next to Wilson Central High School. Or check us out online at connectchurchtn.com. Thanks so much and have a blessed day.